Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 91, December 12th to December 18th, 1862. Last week, we covered the Battle of Prairie Grove, a sharp contest in Arkansas that has large ramifications on how the Trans-Mississippi unfolds. It is interesting to think we had Pea Ridge and Prairie Grove, which both could have turned out much differently, especially for the Confederacy. Pea Ridge, the outright Union victory, and Prairie Grove being the Pyrrhic victory that it was for the Union, what if the efforts were more combined, an administrator like Hindman and an aggressive commander like Van Dorn could have made for the kind of combination that may have been an issue even for James Blunt. This week, we will have another battle in its entirety. We are going to be heading back to Virginia at a small town on the Rappahannock called Fredericksburg. Before we head to Fredericksburg, I do want to mention that we should have some Patreon content being posted here, and it's going to be a movie review. I did a a live part one review of Uh, the movie Gods and Generals, and I think it actually will work very well for this week, especially because it does have a depiction of the Battle of Fredericksburg. So be on the lookout for part one, and then part two we will probably be posting here in January. Now, just to back up, Fredericksburg was founded all the way back in 1728, so it was an older city at the time. There were connections with the early life of George Washington, a fact that was well known to many soldiers during the Civil War. A fire in 1807 had reduced the city somewhat, but its location on the Rappahannock, as well as proximity to Washington and Richmond, made it a good place for trade. The city sits on the southern part of the river, with two sets of higher ground being prominent features, one across the river being the Stafford Heights, and one behind the city in Marie's Heights. In the winter of 1862, the Army of the Potomac had set up on the Stafford Heights, while the Confederates had set up on Marie's Heights. Both sides, especially the Confederates though, were digging in, making the positions very formidable. Let's talk a little bit about the setup and the dispositions of the troops. When last we left off, Ambrose Burnside was waiting for pontoon bridges so that he could cross the river. Well, he has still been waiting for those pesky pontoons, but the proper supplies have arrived, and it is now time for action. Burnside, though, is going to be racked with indecision. Reportedly, the anxiety of command was getting to him, leaving to a lack of sleep. Inside the army, he was being pressured by his subordinate commanders. Joe Hooker advised for a crossing further upstream, which we can go ahead and bookmark that idea. William Franklin was an advocate for a crossing downstream at a place called Port Royal. Port Royal could allow for Union naval support. 
The only downside was that D.H. Hill was sitting there ready to contest the attempt. Besides this, outside the army there were political pressures to get moving. Although I have seen it debated as to the degree to which Burnside was in the hot seat. Certainly, there were those who thought Burnside incompetent, but overall he was still getting good press, benefiting perhaps by the fact he was not George B. McClellan. Lincoln did travel to confer directly with his commanding general at Akia Creek, so maybe there was more than meets the eye, but especially being winter, I would imagine there being less of an emphasis on immediate action. Speaking of the winter, there are all kinds of accounts of the hardships brought on by not being in true winter quarters for both sides. If you recall, we mentioned that in the winter, more permanent structures were necessary to protect the soldiers from the elements. There are accounts of men waking up with their hair frozen or even sentries freezing to death. Food is always an issue. It seems to me the best way to phrase it that food and clothing especially, as well as other supplies, were now catching up to both armies. But, and this is a big but, the sick lists for both were expanding. Deaths as a result of winter and camp conditions were rising. So in that sense, if there was going to be any offensive action, they were on the clock. Troop strengths minus these numbers were approximately 120,000 on the federal side, in a mix of estimates, but probably up to maybe 80,000 on the Confederate side. Despite having his army revamped after the comparative lower numbers used to invade Maryland, Lee would not be going on the offensive. Stafford Heights commanded any kind of approach, and there really was no opportunity to flank the enemy, a fact pointed out by a no-doubt disappointed Stonewall Jackson, whose wing was stretched out to the east of the more concentrated Longstreet. Despite the strong defenses, it would be Burnside who was compelled to act. This is where, and I know we mentioned this in a previous episode, but this is where the fact that Burnside does steal a march on the Confederates, and he is able to get to Fredericksburg, and he might have been able to exploit the fact that he got there first, but he does hesitate. When that happens, though, he is going to be able to choose the ground in which the two armies fight, and in this case, Fredericksburg is not going to be the ideal location for Lee. He doesn't necessarily want to fight a battle there, and it is because he cannot really effectively strike back at any kind of attack by the Union Army, and there's not really a good way, especially in the winter, to flank Burnside. So there are all these factors that are going into sort of the decision-making on both sides. Pontoons were ready to be deployed December 11th, which would mark the beginning of Burnside's assault. William Franklin would advance across the river to the east, making a rail line his target, while Sumner would advance directly across the river at Fredericksburg proper. Now, in case you were not aware, it is sort of a process to make a pontoon bridge. I will admit, as well, a little writer's note here, that I am not particularly equipped to describe a pontoon, so I'm going to read a description 
uh, for you. And this is from the book Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg by George C. Rabble. So that is where I am getting this from. Wagons drawn by six mules bore the pontoons to the river. One group of engineers placed a heavy timber abutment on the ground and secured it with stakes. Then a six-man team maneuvered a boat into place, turning it parallel to the shore and anchoring it in position. At this point, several blocks, floor timbers measuring 25 feet long and a little more than four inches wide, were laid over the first boat, lashed into place, and then topped with chesses, boards approximately 14 feet long and 12 inches wide laid across them. Side rails laid along the chesses over the outside balks completed the job. Another pontoon would be floated out approximately 13 feet from the first, and the process continued until the bridge was secured to an abutment on the opposite shore. So there you have it. You have a good description of how one makes a pontoon and how it might actually be sort of a process, right? Two regiments of engineers would be tasked with the creation of these mobile walkways. In Franklin's sector, things went off without an issue. In fact, Union troops only received sporadic fire from sharpshooters, which were easily cleared by artillery. This would not be the same case in the town of Fredericksburg, seeing much greater resistance. But why exactly was that? Well, Jackson's wing was slotted to face Franklin, and his divisions were pretty well spread out. If you remember, D.H. Hill is all the way at Port Royal. There would be time necessary to gather in his full strength, regardless of the strength of the positions. The delay for the Union Army would come in the form of of a single brigade of Mississippians under William Barksdale. Barksdale was a politician and Mexican War veteran who was an aggressive commander to say the least, which is actually going to be his undoing at Gettysburg. I saw an account that Barksdale held the coat of Preston Brooks while he caned Sumner on the house floor, so you can maybe bet how dedicated he was to the cause. Barksdale and his Mississippians began firing on the engineers, killing and wounding many to delay their progress. Burnside would be frustrated by the lack of completion of this prong, Franklin having an easy time and waiting for Sumner. The powerful guns on Stafford Heights would be ordered to level the town as it seemed all buildings were being used to house the rebels. This was the first time in the war that potential civilians were intentionally targeted, although to be fair, most had already fled the town. For the few that remained, the Confederates would be outraged, and thus seek retribution. Both sides wrote of the horror, spectacle, and in some cases elation the bombardment produced. One Federal battery reportedly unleashed 500 rounds into the buildings, which speaks to the magnitude of the barrage. I've sort of seen it implied that this bombardment of the city of Fredericksburg is really evidence that Burnside is either really indecisive or he's sort of losing control of the situation. So he's, he's frustrated that his plans aren't working. And even if they were working, you know, he, he does have anxiety about them. So he orders this bombardment 
of the town as sort of a result of all these things piling up. And it's an interesting theory. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but, you know, it is the first situation where you could be intentionally trying to incur some civilian casualties. So there is something to be said about that. Even with the impressive barrage, the sharpshooters were not dislodged from their hiding places, although they had taken many casualties. Several regiments from Howard's division would answer the call for an amphibious landing. Now we have a good picture in our heads from World War II of Marines storming the beaches. Maybe, like me, you remember Robert Redford's scene from A Bridge Too Far. Well, up until this point in American history, there had not been a successful amphibious landing under fire. Men from the 7th Michigan were up to the task, though. Jumping into the pontoons, they would be able to establish a beachhead due to cover from the southern bank. Along with men from the 19th and 20th Massachusetts, they were able to push the Mississippi men back from Water Street and engage in heavy house-to-house fighting. There are accounts from both sides illustrating the ferocity and sometimes even the lack of mercy when it came to this action. You will recall the 20th Massachusetts has been dealt a tough hand. First Ball's Bluff, and then they were subjected to combat in the Westwoods and Antietam. They're going to be dealt with again poorly by the Southerners, reportedly dropping 100 men in 50 yards. The Harvard Regiment would be beset upon by a member of the Mississippi Brigade, who had not only attended the school, but had been told a classmate was leading part of the 20th. He would disobey orders in order to get at them one more time before withdrawing. Barksdale would eventually be ordered to withdraw his entire force, but his remarkable feat had been accomplished. His lone brigade had held up the Union Army for an entire day. As the Union troops began to pour into the city under scattered rebel artillery fire, the looting of the town became widespread. Some point to the distribution of liquor to the troops as a reward for the successful capture and the further steadying of their courage but others point to the frustration and difficulty with which they had seen in the assault. Whatever the cause, there was destruction into the civilian homes and looting of valuables. Reports have pianos being tossed into the street and fine furniture being used as kindling. Mirrors were smashed and souvenirs taken and sent back home. There are also accounts of men dressing up in fine women's attire, a kind of bizarre burlesque show. Overall, the scene was that of chaos and a carnival all rolled into one. It's going to be situations like this where we think about how the Union Army spends most of its time in Virginia and that takes a heavy toll on the civilians. There's this kind of looting that's being done in Fredericksburg and there's going to be some rebel soldiers who are going to want to reciprocate that when they invade the North again in 1863. The Confederates were still in their well-entrenched positions, and occasional small arms and artillery fire would remind the Union boys that there was still more work to be done. Burnside had hoped his crossing on December 11th, partially covered by fog, would catch the Confederates off kilter. With Jackson's more scattered command, he could use a main roadway to divide the two wings, making life difficult for Lee. 
but Jackson had been able to arrive and consolidated. There was no more surprise. So what exactly was Burnside to do? It was suggested that they could attempt to flank the Confederates out of their positions near the lower crossings with Franklin's 1st and 6th Corps. Burnside, though, would not budge on his plan. Franklin would attack Jackson, and Sumner would attack Longstreet. Hopefully, the two forces acting in concert would be able to push the Confederates back. Franklin, though, is going to be confused with his orders. He is not wanting to end up like Porter, so he will not be the reason there are any disasters in the army, which will cause hesitation, and perhaps where the attack was truly supposed to be emphasized, it would be something not as well remembered as the assault on Murray's Heights. The commander of the Army of the Potomac was going to silence his critics, most notably the McClellan Loyalists, that still filled his officer corps, as well as alleviate any political pressure. He would find out this would not be the case on the 13th of December. For the action on December 13th, we will begin with the lower crossings. Here, Franklin's Grand Division would see action against Jackson and his wing. Mostly, these would be troops under the command of A.P. Hill and Jubal Early. Jackson had his men on a line just beyond the Fredericksburg-Potomac Railroad, which ran relatively parallel with the old Richmond Stage Road. Prospect Hill, with good tree cover, was the position in which the rebels would occupy. A.P. Hill, though, had made an error in deploying his brigades, leaving a 600-yard gap that, in his mind, would be checked by the swampy terrain that there occupied. Brigades under Lane and Archer would be supported by Maxie Gregg and his South Carolina troops, which were behind this ground some ways away. This would be the objective of Meade's division, still made up of mostly Pennsylvania reserves, which would spearhead the 1st Corps attack. There have been questions as to the mindset of A.P. Hill as well as Jackson. The two generals were still feuding. Despite their disagreements, it was probably unlikely that A.P. Hill was trying to undermine Jackson in this move. Having recently lost a child, Hill's mind may not have been on the task at hand. Jackson should also share a little bit of criticism. He did not do anything to fix the potential oversight in his line. Luckily for both, there would also be errors on the side of the Federals. Now, did Jackson just not want to keep stirring the pot by going to A.P. Hill and fixing this part of the line? That could be one explanation for why he doesn't use his authority to fix the situation, right? Fogg would cover the crossing of the Union troops, now ready to drive the Confederates from this portion of the field. But their advance would be temporarily halted. What force of men would stand up and pause the Union attack? Was it a brigade like Barksdale's on the 11th? It may sound ridiculous, but it was a single Napoleon from John Pelham's battery. Stuart and his cavalry were supporting the right flank of Jackson, which included 18 guns under Pelham. 
Pelham would request permission to advance a single gun to a spot where he could enfilade the advancing Union lines, which he did, causing the blue-clad men to seek cover, unaware of where the fire was hitting them from. The rebel gun was concealed by hedges, so the counterparts on the Union side could not locate it and return fire. This is not to say that Pelham's men were not hit. In fact, the battery suffered several casualties, forcing Pelham to help man the gun himself. After the jobs of the crew were done, he ordered them to lie down for protection against return fire. Several Union batteries were stymied by this single piece. Pelham refused to withdraw until sternly ordered by Stewart. The young major from Alabama would receive the moniker the gallant Pelham by Lee, but there is a lot of grandeur that is heaped on this part of the action. Was it really a huge part of the fight, or was it simply a good story, and furthermore a good story when it came to the southern press? Pelham would embody the young and heroic youth. Remember, we used to talk about the knighthood and aristocratic image some of the rebels took, so it's not hard to see why his exploits were placed with so much emphasis. It does make Franklin afraid of a potential flanking movement, which will result in Doubleday's division shifting to meet a potential threat and not being involved in the action. This is unfortunate because the division under Doubleday is going to be some of the better troops in this part of the field. The other thing that needs to be pointed out with Pelham and his action is that the Union do still have a very large superiority when it comes to artillery, and especially on Stafford Heights. So there's going to be really no follow-up in terms of a Confederate success here. So if they can miss one gun, they're probably not going to miss advancing rebel troops. Federal artillery would seek to silence any further guns the rebels had that may stop the infantry advance. Counter-battery fire would neutralize the southern guns on Prospect Hill. Free from these weapons, Meade would be able to exploit the gap, which he promptly did. Maxie Gregg was concerned that his men would actually be firing on retreating Confederates, attempting to escape the Union artillery fire. Very much mistaken, Gregg would be hit in the spine, a wound that would prove mortal, although he will linger long enough to see the Confederate counterthrust and cheer it on from a nearby tree. If there was any moment on the day where Burnside's plan could be carried out, and the Federals successful, it was right there on Prospect Hill. Meade had one brigade under Feger Jackson and one under Colonel William Sinclair, exploiting the break, with Sinclair's men pushing toward James Lane and his North Carolina men, while James Archer felt the pressure from Feger Jackson. Reportedly, many Georgia men would be caught in a deadly crossfire and attempt to surrender. When pressed by a Union officer, they replied they would gladly do so if the Federals would allow them to. Archer would be shored up by men from Early's division, arriving to not only strengthen the line, but also provide infilating fire on the Pennsylvania reserves. Figure Jackson, a veteran of the Mexican-American War and described as a heavy drinker, would be killed and his men pushed back. John Gibbon's division would be pressing further up the line, but the other brigades under Hill were able to support Lane and stop the assault. Despite there being a particularly fierce bayonet charge, 
led by the 16th Maine of Adrian Root's brigade. Amazingly, Meade would have no support for his attack. David Burney and his division of Stoneman's Corps of Hooker's Grand Division was supposedly slotted to potentially aid in this assault. Pleas were sent from Meade to join the fight, the old snapping turtle eventually riding to find Burney himself and tear him a new one for not advancing. A frustrated Meade would apparently bark to Reynolds, My God, General, did they think my division would whip Lee's army? No, the attacks would sputter out in the early afternoon, Jackson having held the line. Because of two streams, the Union force was divided, so they were unable to really provide support for one another anyway, but it is debatable as to whether Burnside knew of the result of the Prospect Hill fight. Blame certainly can be thrown at the commander, but it is also apparent that Franklin as well as Reynolds were unaware exactly of what the objective was. Was this attack a feint intended to keep Jackson busy, or was it a true assault of the rebel line? This confusion would be costly on a day that would see high tolls already being taken by the Army of the Potomac. There are a couple things that we need to unpack here. Most notably, I think that if Franklin and Reynolds are aware of exactly what the objective is, if it really was to make this the main focus of the assault, then there probably would have been supporting units to help out Meade, and it very well could have broken the Confederate line. Meade is going to never really forgive David Burney for not coming to his aid in this situation, and it's, it's really hard not to blame him. But I do also want to point out that for the Confederate side, early isn't necessarily supposed to be there to save this wing of the army. He exceeds his orders in marching his men to where they were. So we have on the Union side a missed opportunity, and then we have a lucky oversight on the part of Early taking it upon himself to do more than what was expected. So sometimes in these battles, things like that happen. It could just be one or the other. And this is a great example of how things could have been really different if Early doesn't show up. It could have been really different if Bernie is able to bring his men across the river. And maybe even if the division commanded by Doubleday was involved in the assault too, that also could have changed things here. Gibbon would have taken on 1,200 casualties in his failed assault on the Confederate line. Likewise, Meade's brigades were in a bad shape. This was seemingly a good opportunity to counterattack on part of the Southerners. Edmund Atkinson and his Georgia brigade, formerly Lawton's, would charge out from Early's division in a mad dash that triggered Lee's famous quote, It is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we would grow too fond of it. Atkinson and his men would capture several Federals, but push too far past the railroad tracks, meaning not only artillery, but Bernie's finally arriving division. The brigade would take on some 200 casualties, including the capture of Atkinson, before making it back to friendly lines. Likewise, two rookie North Carolina regiments, made up of Scotch-Irish and Germans from Law's Brigade, would make a reckless charge toward Federal artillery before being reined in by Hood. Jackson would wish to exploit their successful defense, 
but counter-battery fire was still showing the Union superiority, and there were still two fresh divisions of Sickles and Doubleday. Franklin has been criticized of being too cautious, but we should point out that he is a McClellan loyalist and very much like his commander, if you remember his pause when chasing McClaws at South Mountain. Doubleday's division included not one but two Iron Brigades, the Iron Brigade as well as Phelps' New York Iron Brigade, veteran units that may have been useful in the fight. Tolliver and D.H. Hill's men would essentially not get into the fray, Jackson having to be content with less than the destruction of Franklin on the day. It's another thing we do need to point out too is that Jackson does have reserves that don't see action, so there are a lot of variables that we can talk about, especially when all these pieces are still on the board and they haven't been used, right? The upper crossing would see Burnside's men attacking the stronger position of Marie's Heights. Just beyond the town, at the base of the high ground was a sunken road protected by a stone wall. Longstreet's men, particularly Tom Cobb and his Georgians, had added earth to the four-foot stone wall, making it an even stronger position. At the four-foot height, and commanding open ground in which the Federals would have to assault, it was, in the words of many Confederates, the perfect position. Artillery could freely rain down shot, shell, and canister on the attackers. Many accounts claimed that with each shot, three or four men would be killed, with a handful more wounded. A mill race ran through the field, being a hindrance to the attackers, but also providing key cover. There were some buildings also that would provide some safety, but these were few and far between. Was this supposed to be the main attack on the Confederate line? Probably not. Was the attack on the lower bridges and Prospect Hill supposed to be the main attack? Most likely. Whatever the original plan, the confusion surrounding Burnside and his strategy was going to prove deadly. Darius Couch, commanding the 2nd Corps, would be first up tasked with the taking of the Confederate position. William French's division would be the first, Nathan Kimball being given the honor of leading, throwing out regiments as skirmishers. Almost immediately, his regiments would be chewed up. The 8th Ohio suffered terribly in the assault, attempting to find cover at the few outbuildings. French's 3rd Brigade contained the 132nd Pennsylvania, who had already been badly cut up at Antietam. Many of these men refused to go, at one point only a single company being led to the front. There are many accounts of just the raw carnage that the regiments had to face. One soldier in the 108th New York had both legs shot off and pleaded at the reinforcements not to look at him and pass on. Even stopping for a moment could mean death. Confederate fire was described as a perfect sheet of flame. Another soldier is quoted to as having said they might as well have been trying to take hell. Straggling, there was much of, but the regiments would still have enough men ready to face the slaughter. Whether it was a sense of honor or duty to one's country or to one's comrades, the Union boys came on. The fields were soon covered in blue bodies, wounded, dead, and simply clinging to the ground for cover. 
As the dead started to pile up, bodies were used as breastworks to protect those in the open. The 53rd Pennsylvania, which was arguably the furthest regiment on the day, and for sure the furthest amongst French's division, was forced to simply stay where they were. There was no withdrawing without risking death. Despite this one-sided picture, the Confederates were not without losses. Tom Cobb, brother of Hal Cobb, would be wounded by artillery fire during these assaults, the shot severing his femoral artery. Men from Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade, as well as from Ransom's North Carolina Division, would join the line, reinforcing it. Kershaw would soon take control of the whole line of the Confederates. Despite only these units being engaged, there were casualties from some units further up the heights who were taking on Union artillery fire, the longer-range guns still very effective. Some places did not have fieldworks, so the troops were relatively in the open. Additionally, there was a problem of friendly fire, with men further up the heights firing down in the vicinity of their comrades. Winfield Scott Hancock's men were up next, with Samuel Zook's brigade leading the way. The 57th New York would go through three commanding officers, the 66th four. Thomas Marr and his Irish brigade were after them. Since the fighting at Antietam, the flags of the regiments were so full of holes that they had to be taken and new ones were being made. So, unfortunately, you have the rather iconic, maybe, depiction of the Irish Brigade waving their green flags as they assault the rebel position, but they would not have had those flags at the time of the battle. Still wanting to make sure that they paid homage to their heritage, Thomas Marr would have his soldiers put sprigs in their caps, signifying their Irish descent. Since Antietam, the brigade had been supplemented by the 116th Pennsylvania, which, along with their lone Massachusetts regiment, probably made up the most of the men. The three New York regiments had been depleted. But it is these who are often getting credit with being the furthest to the Confederate line, maybe coming within 30 yards of the stone wall. There were Irish in the Georgia ranks who would mournfully call out, my God, what a pity, here comes Mars Fellows. Robert McMillan, the colonel who would take over for the wounded Cobb, was himself Irish, now commanding his men to take a heavy toll on his countrymen. Caldwell's brigade, the last to enter the fray, did no better than the men before them. Edward Cross and his 5th New Hampshire hugged the ground. Cross himself would keep his head down, counting to a hundred at the sound of heavy firing. Inside that one hundred count, if he raised his head, he would see men down by the score. Two-thirds of the strength in Caldwell's regiments were sapped. Hancock would estimate his total losses as 40% for his division. Oliver Howard was the only division that had not seen action yet against the stone wall. Likewise, the Ninth Corps was on the scene, commanded by Orlando Wilcox. Samuel Sturgis's division would, like Howard, be given the task of finding and potentially turning the flank of Kershaw and his rebels. 
Howard would throw in the already spent brigade of Norman Hall, which contained the 20th and 19th Massachusetts, as well as the 7th Michigan. The Philadelphia Brigade would also be badly treated in their support. Alfred Scully and the remaining brigade would actually issue the regiments in support sparingly, wanting to avoid destruction. Ferrero's brigade from Sturgis's division would attempt to flank the other way, along with James Nagel's brigade. They would fare just as well. Walt Whitman's brother George of the 51st New York would write that the Confederates were taking as deliberate aim as one would do a chicken. The slaughter was so great. Before their assault on the wall, the 11th New Hampshire had the nickname of being the 300 Bounty Boys. After charging the stone wall, they would lose the nickname. Now during these attacks, some of the men would feign being wounded or volunteer in helping to carry their comrades to field hospitals in order to get out of Confederate lead. That is something that we don't really talk about too much is that there were all kinds of men who were considered cowards. There were those who, and and we usually talk about it in the sense of these memoir reviews, there are the men that they were called coffee grinders who are sort of making their own way through things. You know, Skulkers is another name for these individuals. There are numerous accounts that I've read about individuals who they're essentially trying to depict themselves as performing this courageous act, but really they're just getting out of the way of the fighting and conveniently taking their time and coming back. I've seen other accounts for other battles where officers would, and sometimes I think maybe... We don't understand this. It doesn't really seem fair to the wounded man, but they would force some of these men to go back into the fighting because they understood what they were trying to do. And that might not seem to be necessary. You want to still save the wounded man, but it's a good glimpse into trying to understand the mentality of these officers and these soldiers and the kind of the ideals that they had and their attitudes toward combat. Despite the ineffective assaults on the sunken road, Burnside was not done throwing more men into the meat grinder. Part of the reason was the overcautious nature of his predecessor. If there was just a little more pressure and commitment applied to the enemy, then perhaps there could be a breakthrough. The 5th Corps and the remaining divisions under George Getty from the 9th were tasked with the final assault. Hooker would be exasperated at his superior's insistence to continue the attack, thinking that the men would be better used to set up for a potential Confederate counterstrike. Intel, though, had arrived from the front that the Confederates were withdrawing, when in fact this was just the Washington Artillery of New Orleans, having expended their ammunition, being replaced with fresh guns from E. Porter Alexander. This is not going to be the most famous instance of guns or troops withdrawing and then the other side thinking that they're good to go and all they need to do is just push a little bit more and we're going to see that here in July of 1863 that the shoe is going to be on the other foot in a situation that's very similar. So the offensive would resume. Charles Griffin's division, which included Jacob Schweitzer, 
the Corn Exchange Regiment, the Finding 9th Massachusetts, and the 20th Maine would see much of the same results as those who had gone before. Andrew Humphreys would lead his fresh division of raw Pennsylvania men into the battle after Griffin. Humphreys had been a topographical engineer prior to the war, serving against the Seminole, but this was going to be his first battlefield command. As his men advanced, he rode ahead in an attempt to clear the street of any wounded, a task that was going to be a losing battle in the latter stages of the fight. But his men were rookies, and he did not want to see what had happened to all those that had gone before. Humphreys would then show his bravado, stating to his staff, Young gentlemen, I intend to lead this assault. I presume, of course, you will wish to ride with me. Humphrey would have two horses shot from under him, but be otherwise unharmed in the assault. Getty's division would be the last into action, but with the sun going down, many men would simply try to hide out the light. One private was quoted as having said he wished he could kick that thing down when referencing to the setting sun. As the sun went down, the fighting would come to an end on the 13th. Men would write about just the amount of noise the wounded made in the darkness. Lanterns could be seen as surgeons and soldiers attempted to save those they could. One private would write that he came across so many limbs and pieces of men that he was not ashamed to say he gave up on trying to help. Amazingly, Burnside had every intention of continuing the attack. His thinking was that perhaps if he went down and personally led his own 9th Corps, then they would be able to take the works. His correspondence with Lincoln said as much. He was confident they would seize the high ground. His Grand Division commanders, though, would understand that the battle was over. The two armies would be staring at each other for the 14th, with sporadic firing and skirmishing. No assault came from the 9th Corps or from Sykes, who were both rumored to be the ones leading the attack. Looting of Fredericksburg continued, as would the stripping of the Union dead by the Confederates, unfortunate parts of war. So it actually be a point of contention for the Union troops. They did not like the fact that their dead before the stone wall were stripped of valuables, but... We should also point out that there is logistical issues when it comes to supply for the Army of Northern Virginia, and if there are now an abundance of overcoats in these winter months, and we mentioned how poorly supplied both armies were for the winter, then you might take your chances in attempting to acquire a new overcoat. Jackson was still impatient for a counterattack. Lee may have listened to him if he knew there would be no further assaults and the demoralization of the army. At the end of the 14th, the Federals would begin to withdraw, completing the task early on the 15th, moving across the river and away from the enemy. There was still much work to be done in the form of caring for the remaining wounded and burying of the dead. In Jackson's sector, there had been an unofficial truce, with men on both sides conversing and trading newspapers, among other things. George Kirkland at the Sunken Road had filled canteens and aided the Federals, 
something that drew cheers from the regulars under Sykes. Overall, the battle had produced over 12,500 casualties on the Union side and over 5,000 on the Confederate side. This was to be an incredible victory for the Confederates. We will actually talk about it next week, but it is disappointing to Lee. He's not able to crush his enemy. That's always the goal that he's trying to achieve. There's not any major counter-strike. Longstreet is going to remember Fredericksburg. It's going to be printed into his brain, so keep that in mind as well as we get into 1863. He wants to make sure that there's going to always be a Fredericksburg that the Confederates can fight as opposed to any kind of offensive action, so that's going to play a part in our future story. We can come to a pause there, having fought the Battle of Fredericksburg. There will be some fallout from this battle that we will get at more in-depth here in the coming weeks. Just know that for now there is going to be a pause. Eventually Burnside is going to be deemed not the right fit for the army fairly soon. Next week we do have a couple of events. Grant's first crack at Vicksburg is going to sputter out for two reasons. The first is that Sherman is going to see a defeat at Chickasaw Bayou. The second is Van Doren's redemption, the Holly Springs Raid. We also have more naval events with the sinking of the USS Cairo, so stay tuned for that. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome, questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.